0: this episode of revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design Facebook undoubtedly has some of the world's top designers working under one roof but what does it actually take to be a designer there? I asked product designer John Angelo to find out it takes uh, having a lot of empathy and being able to think in a lot of different from a lot of different standpoints. Like, uh, for example, one big thing that that you have to take into account is how many different demographics and types of people that you're designing for at Facebook. You're you're building a a great product that works well for everyone. It's it's best to not think in a bubble, to think outside of the box, and to, you know, um, bring a whole lot of different perspectives into your designs. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast. A weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I just wanted to remind you again that we're sponsoring the 2017 Black in Design Conference. This is going to take place October 6th through the 8th at the Harvard University Graduate School of Design. Curator Hamza Walker is giving the opening Friday night keynote, and activist and podcast host DeRay McKesson is going to give the closing keynote on Saturday. General admission tickets are still available. I'll put a link in the show notes. so You can get yours today. The presenting sponsor for this week's episode is Video Blogs. You know, if you've ever been in the need for a quick video for a web project or if you're, like, finishing something up in After Effects or Premiere, then Videoblocks is for you. Get HD footage, motion backgrounds, After Effects templates, and a whole lot more. And new clips are added all the time, so there's always something fresh when you go back. Go to Videoblocks.com forward slash provision path and get all the clips you can imagine for just $149 a year. Videoblocks. V-I-D-E-O block forward slash revision path now let's talk about our sponsors mailchimp hover and siteground automation is huge and the great thing about mailchimp is how they use automations to help make your email marketing efforts more powerful You can set up automations to reward the most active people on your list, send order notifications, and follow up on purchases, and now you can even do retargeting. You know how you'll browse something on Amazon and then you magically see an ad for it on another site? MailChimp can help you do retargeting like that. Sign up at MailChimp.com today for a free account and give it a try. MailChimp. Send better email. Your online identity really begins with your domain name. No matter what kind of an artist or a designer or developer you might be, showcasing your passion online is super important, and Hover makes the process of finding a domain super simple with hundreds of domain extensions, personalized email, and award-winning customer service. Go to hover.com forward slash provision path and get 10% off your first purchase. SiteGround's hosting services are crafted for professional, business, or enterprise projects. They let you build better, faster, safer websites more easily, and they offer multiple options that your websites can grow into. All plans on SiteGround have managed WordPress hosting. They include staging and Git integration. So get started today by visiting SiteGround.com forward slash revision path and get 60% off on all hosted plans. SiteGround, web hosting crafted with care. Now for this week's interview. We're talking to Mikhail Solomon, founder and director of PRISM Art Fair in Miami, Florida. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Mikhail Solomon.
1: I'm the director of PRISM Art Fair. We are an art fair that's located in Miami that happens during Basel Week. And we have a special focus on uh, exhibiting African and African diaspora artists who reflect global trends in contemporary art. And this is our fifth year anniversary. We'll be be hosting it in December 5th through December
0: 17th in Miami. Nice. Mm -hmm. How did you first get started with PRISM?
1: I started working on PRISM. I was working on a couple of art projects as an art administrator prior to beginning PRISM. I worked with another art fair before, and I really enjoyed that experience. I learned a lot about the contemporary art field and practice, and uh, worked with a lot of artists that whose work I really admired and enjoyed. And so just started, decided after that experience that I would just start fresh and start my own project, something that I could really believe in and that I hope the artists that I work with believe in. I believe I began it, I think it was July of 2013, that uh, we incorporated and started down this little journey. It's been a while. I've learned a lot in a very short span of time working on the project, and I'm just looking forward to continued growth and sustainability.
0: Now, as the director of this this art fair, what are some of your just regular tasks that you end up having to do when I guess you know as it comes up to the event, what are you working on?
1: So, it's really a lot because I still largely do a lot of the bulk of the work on my own, so it ranges from recording sponsors to updating our website to designing our marketing materials to working with press on communications to (laughs) designing our our invitations. It's really an all-encompassing holistic process for me. So there's a lot of project management involved, you know, developing partnerships with other cultural institutions to make sure that there's a multiplicity of levels at which people are communicating with our message. Yeah, there's a lot on a daily basis. I'm writing emails to people. I'm designing things. It really runs the gamut.
0: <laughs> now, do you have a, a staff that helps you out with some of the stuff? Right now, I have
1: an advisory committee of about four people. And I have four interns and they're all kind of scattered about. So I have two interns here in Miami that help me and then I have two interns in Washington DC that uh, support where and when they can.
0: Okay, so you kind of have some some remote help. That's good. Yes, uh-huh. Now does that sort of ebb and flow as the the years go on cuz I would imagine since this happens in December, maybe sometime In the early spring, that's when you start kind of coordinating and getting things together.
1: Right. So it's really literally as soon as the previous fair closes, we already begin planning for the next one. So last year when PRISM closed in December of 2016, in January, we were already planning for this upcoming December. It really does take a lot of time and effort to build relationships with potential sponsors Writing grants, that sort of thing. It, it really is a, a year-round endeavor.
0: Now, what are some of the events that go on at Prism for our audience that might be interested in, in learning more about it? Last year,
1: just as I'll give give I'll use last year as a frame of reference. Last year, we had sixty artists from around the world, including Africa, the Caribbean, Caribbean islands, including Barbados. Trinidad, Jamaica, St. Kitts. I believe we had an artist as well from St. Martin. Then we also have artists from, from Canada, from all over the United States, New York, Chicago, San Francisco, San Diego. So it's really a Pan-African visual arts fair. And then to add to that, we also host special events like dinner events. Sometimes we do film screenings as well from Black filmmakers. So it really becomes like a really holistic, creative visual arts art fair. And we host our art fair during Art Basel. So in addition to having access to our events, you know, there's always other events happening around Miami at the same time. So you can really immerse yourself in Miami's cultural landscape. Miami becomes a very international city during that week. And it's always the first week of December. That's essentially what we do. We also have performance artists. So essentially, Prism is broken down into four different layers of programming. We have the visual arts component, the the actual art fair, where you see the various contemporary artists we have exhibiting. Then we have Prism Perform. Prism Perform is our section that focuses on performance artists. So we usually have about two to three performance artists each year, and they do maybe about 30 minutes of performance work. Then some years, um, last year we didn't have any film, but the year prior and the year prior to that, we did have film screenings and then we also have prism preview which is sort of our like events section where we have either a really a really great party or we have a sit down dinner where our guests get to interface with some of the artists who are exhibiting at the art fair
0: so from what you're you're describing we have something kind of similar here in atlanta we have the national black arts festival i'm sure you've heard of that yes i have mm-hmm. And it's kind of a similar thing where there's, uh, they do a film screening. They've got like a big vendor fair, like so you can go and buy a bunch of different things. Mm-hmm. They've got They have, they do have musical acts. I remember they have musical acts. So it's kind of like what you're describing. Right. And because, like you said, it's going on during Art Basel. You have all these other activities that you can attend as well. Mm-hmm. So. Was PRISM always during that time or did it just sort of end up migrating to that time to accommodate more guests?
1: No, it was always, we started it and it's always been during Art Basel Week.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay.
1: But we also, we also have, so I'm also an independent curator. So during the year I work with other art galleries and other cultural spaces and I will develop exhibitions both in here in Miami and outside of Miami. So sometimes, I think I've done projects with Rush Philanthropic Arts Foundation in New York where I exhibited or curated an exhibition And I want to say it was 2015. It was called My Big Black America, which was named after, the I guess, the, the, the central piece in that exhibition. And I've also done exhibitions here in Miami at the Little Haiti Cultural Arts Center, as well as the African Heritage Cultural Arts Center. So we try to... As I I mentioned earlier, we try to partner with other cultural institutions so that other audiences get a chance to interface with the work that we're doing, as well as share our audience with the cultural spaces that host us.
0: What makes the Miami kind of art and design scene there unique? Miami is a, a space
1: that is, it's still very young in its development, in its cultural development. So... There's really opportunities here to be creative on a much more consistent basis because the barriers of entry are, are fairly low. So if you have good ideas and you have really novel ideas, you can really make an imprint here. Where you know in other communities like like say New York or LA, it might be a little bit more difficult, mainly because they already have very well-established cultural spaces, and they're a little bit more difficult to penetrate. I think in Miami, you can you can kind of be very experimental. You can test new and different modes here, where I think in other spaces, it might be a little bit more difficult to do so.
0: And I would imagine Miami is also probably pretty unique because you have such a strong Kind of Caribbean influence as well oh, yeah. You have Cuban, you have Haiti,
1: yeah, yeah M- Miami is a very Caribbean slash Latin American space in many ways I've heard many people say that it doesn't even feel like it's a part of the United States <laughs> because it's so it's so Caribbean and it's so Latin American. so in that respect the the cultural explorations here are usually very rooted in the people that exist here. And so, yeah, I think if you're looking to have a different experience from what you what you might have in other parts of the United States, Miami does offer that. But it, it's definitely not without its challenges. But I definitely do think you 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 get to you get to feel a different pulse here in Miami than you would other other places.
0: Let's talk about your background for a little bit. How did you first get started? Not with with prisons specifically, but getting into this particular field, into curating, into mm. arts and festivals, how did you first get started?
1: So really, I'm an architect by education. I went okay. I went to architecture school. I have my master's degree in architecture. And something I loved about going to architecture school is that it was a place where you can just be very playful and very experimental. You really kind of Found out, I really found out where my creative inclinations and my creative strengths were when I was in architecture school. Because it was, architecture school is hard, it's rigorous, and it forces you to kind of focus on, like, like, find where your creative strengths are. And so I spent, you know, about, I think it was about four and a half years in architecture school. And I worked at a number of architecture firms while I was in school and after. After I left school, architecture for a person like me was working in the industry was difficult because I'm a very I'm part introvert, part extrovert. And at the time, at that particular time in my life, when I when I left architecture school, I was very extroverted. So sitting behind a computer for 12 hours was very difficult for me. And that's, you know, that's kind of what the industry demands. It demands focus consistent focus every single day. And it's not that I lack focus, but I at that time, I was still very much a very social person. Like I liked being around people and talking to people and, and networking and that sort of thing in a way that working in, at least in the corporate structure of architecture, didn't really allow for that. There was one instance where I was working with, with an architect who, who was in fact interested in arts and arts administration and how art can connect communities to change. And so that was interesting. And it was through that, through working with him that I kind of fell into what I'm doing now because he was interested in the arts. I was interested in the arts and working on projects with him. I kind of found this niche for myself and I was able to use the skills that I learned in architecture school to be an effective project manager and administrator of a project of the scale. So I never felt that hosting a festival was very difficult because I had the skill sets to do it because architecture in of itself demands a lot of nimbleness as it pertains to getting projects done. So th-
0: that's kind of where it came from. So it sounds like architecture kind of helped you with kind of establishing a bit of a structure in this sort of creative slash artsy sort of endeavor that you're working on. That's right. That's
1: right. I consider architecture an art of itself, in of itself, but architecture, Mm -hmm. by virtue of what it is, requires structure. I was able to assign the structure that the architecture industry demands to to Prism, which is the project that I'm working on now.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've had a few architects on the show, and they've all kind of said how architectures really helped them to structure and to think one that we had in particular Aisha Densmore Bay she's an architect in Boston mm-hmm. and she was saying how she kind of sees architecture as a form of design I think the way she mentioned it was like it's all fingers on the same hand or something in that mm-hmm. you're still able to use them with other skills that you have it's not that if you're an architect, You're only designing buildings or structures. That's it. Mm -hmm. It's about being able to kind of take those skills and then extrapolate them into other areas of your life. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: In architecture school, we also learned a lot about graphic design. And so graphic design may have been a small part of that conversation in architecture, but Mm -hmm. I was able to then after having learned the basics of an architecture school, take it to the next level on my own time and then even learn how to incorporate graphic design into architectural projects as well as other things so all the graphics that you see on prism's website prism's website was built by myself because we were these are the a part of of the multiplicity of things we were required to learn while we were in school i find that architecture is just really a holistic practice
0: in many ways. So you're kind of like a jack-of-all-trades with the festival.
1: A little bit. A little bit. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit.
0: So since you're, you're responsible for curating all of these things, I would imagine that that also involves probably a lot of travel, like going to other locations and seeing what's happening there in their art scenes to figure out how to bring all of that back to prism in some sort of way. Would you say that's true?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think since... Before working on Prism, I never traveled so much in my entire life. And, you know, so whilst it is simultaneously a very scary space to, you know, be working on something of the scale, almost alone, it's been a challenge that has blessed me with so many opportunities like traveling. So I've been to Switzerland this year. I actually went to the continent for the first time. Right. So I went to. Oh, nice. I went to Nigeria, I went to Ghana, I went to South Africa. And to me, that was the most important part. Going to Africa was the most important part of this project because I'd never been. And I'm working on a project that essentially makes Africa the critical part of everything that we're doing. So I felt I I had to go and really understand what spaces, what cultural spaces in Africa look like. Africa is a huge continent. So the cultural spaces in Africa are all very, very different. Um, So understanding, too, what those differences are, how different groups of people in Africa produce and relate to their cultures was important to me. And then how we as diasporic communities are different and similar to cultures in Africa, like what connects us all. Those are the kind of things that I think about when I do travel, you know, how other cultures are affected by their relationship to our cultures. How have we had an impact on theirs and vice versa? You know, colonialism has in many ways transformed a lot of things about African cultures. There's a number of of things that I've been blessed with the opportunity to just kind of ruminate on out of the sheer joy of doing it and out of curiosity to really understand even myself because this was like a whole lexicon of information that I was never really taught when I was in school because I went to schools that were not really as focused on African studies and, and it, it wasn't something that I was encouraged to seek out when I was growing up. So my own curiosity kind of led me into led me into this practice and I've enjoyed it thoroughly. I've enjoyed I've enjoyed understanding how other people interpret and understand their cultures through their own experiences. I've enjoyed learning about my own culture, about my own Caribbean heritage, what historical events kind of shaped those Caribbean spaces who were the like thought leaders in these spaces. I've just learned a whole lot in a very short, and like within the five years <laughs> that I've been doing this, a whole entire dictionary of information that I just didn't know before. And I'm, I'm
0: like, I'm I'm just deeply thankful for it. What do you remember the most from your trip throughout Africa?
1: So when I was there, I was there with a group that w- they were focused on entrepreneurial landscapes in Africa so these were like these were venture capitalists. Most of the people on the trip with me were VCs and I was the only business. And so I learned a lot about the entrepreneurship in Africa, what com- the companies, what, co- what companies are focusing on in Africa. I was really fascinated with, with the Nollywood landscape in, in Lagos, Nigeria. I didn't realize how involved it was. We went to a, We went to a, a Nollywood party. And I mean, it really is like a huge scene there. I've actually seen, I'd seen a couple of Nollywood movies over here. So it was really, it was really great to go there, go to a party, meet people in the Nollywood industry. Yeah, I think there's actually a film was just released in Africa on August the 4th called, I think it's called Banana Island Ghost. And, and a friend of mine was one of the producers on that movie it was just fascinating to me because Nollywood is, is very popular, of course, in Africa. And of course, there's communities here in the United States that know about it and are familiar with it. But to actually go there and be in it, that was really fascinating to me. And then, you know, visiting galleries and art spaces in like countries like Ghana and Accra, especially, was really great. We know that art, fine art and crafts from Africa are always beautiful. So to just be able to, to meet with artists who were and see what they're producing now was also a highlight of my trip. And then just understanding the political nuances of each space as well, because I'm also very interested in politics and how politics shapes different communities and for, for better or for worse. So also Feeling how, I think when you go to different spaces, you could always feel through how people interact with each other, what's happening in those spaces, how politics really has either a positive or an adverse effect on on people's daily lives. Feeling those different political spaces was also very interesting as well. I think of all the places that I visited, I think I could find a home in Accra, Ghana, more so than perhaps Lagos and Cape Town. But I I loved all of them individually as individual spaces.
0: We've had someone on the show that is is from Accra. I think he's in, I think he's actually here in the U.S. now. I think he's in California. But what about Accra kind of spoke to you specifically?
1: What I loved about Accra is that Accra has, it has solid infrastructure without, and it's, it's still a very contemporary space without losing its identity. Whereas Cape Town is almost completely westernized. Cape Town feels like an American city in Africa or yeah. a European city in Africa, whereas I find that Ghana, Ghana still feels modern, but it hasn't lost its, I guess, quote unquote, Africanness. If that makes any sense, it's still very very cosmopolitan without losing its cultural touchstones. Right, and it just felt like a. Good space, like I, 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 felt like I could still have a, like almost like a, a New York experience, but it still be of that place and of of the culture and of the people there. I also felt that it was a very affordable city; you could still enjoy an urban lifestyle without it being too expensive. It felt like a very walkable city. It had all the amenities that, as a person who was raised in a Western space that I could still experience those amenities there, but still enjoy, you know, the culture there.
0: I remember this might've been, geez, this might've been about 10 years or so ago. There was this big, like, come home project. Mm-hmm. It came out of out of Accra, came out of Ghana, but it was, it was called the Joseph Project. Mm-hmm. And it was like inviting Black people to come explore Ghana, come back to Africa. Particularly, I think it was come back to Accra to help kind of build up the local entrepreneurial scene mm-hmm. and things like that. So it's, it's interesting to hear that it sort of had that hold and that effect on you, that it was still very modern and cosmopolitan, but also had that, that cultural aspect that didn't make you feel like you were still in the U.S., right. you know? Mm-hmm.
1: Exactly. Exactly. That was it. I mean, I remember going there and there was a—I can't remember the name of the community, but it was a like a condominium community, But the condominiums were even designed with an aesthetic that was clearly rooted in the aesthetic of Africa or of of Western African aesthetic. And there was a, a lounge on the rooftop that was like it was just designed like it was clearly an African space and you have beautiful views of Accra from up there. I was like this is I can totally get used to this, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, I just I really really enjoyed the restaurants there were really good. The food was wonderful. I really liked it a lot. I think they have um from some of the people that I met there. I met with some people who were in education there, so I understand they have a very strong university system there and there were some other folks that I met there in the innovation space who are there, I think they're kind of like the forerunners in creating a technology park for, you know, startup companies in in Ghana. They're definitely thinking about industries, how technology and how industry can support sort of the, I guess, the problems that Africa, West Africa as developing economies are trying to tackle like infrastructural mm-hmm. issues how to support agriculture i really do think that west africa has the potential and they're actually in the process of being a part of that of this process is being the setting precedents for technologies that support developing economies globally like, I personally, like, once I, I get my 40, 40 acres and a mule, I would love to invest <laughs> in more, more companies that are coming from. I actually recommend this that people, particularly African Americans who have the disposable funds or income, mm-hmm. really pay attention to companies that are building themselves in this space and really investing in them so that they can thrive and
0: be active members of the global economy. Yeah, last year I remember I interviewed he's an entrepreneur. He has his own video game company in Cameroon. Mm-hmm. I think it's the only video game company in the country. Mm-hmm. And and he put out like this action RPG called Orion Legend of the Cory Odon and it's like but he's been developing the game since 2003. I think he just released it after getting funding through Kickstarter and it's something where you're seeing the game itself first of all is beautiful gorgeous game but it is definitely steeped in like the traditions of his country and like in quote unquote african it has a very african vibe to the whole game like That's great. the protagonists are african the dress everything nothing about it has been what you would normally think of with that type of a genre which is more honestly european medieval etc right. it's great to to see what's coming out of the continent, and like you said, that there are kind of these ecosystems there, where you have Africans that are solving problems for Africans. Like right. you have people in Ghana solving problems for folks in that community, and it's not something where you know Silicon Valley right. in the U.S. is trying to figure out right. well what do they need over in Africa when mm-hmm. it's such a big place. There's all these different countries, and even in these countries, there might be different needs from city to city. Right. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
1: You know, this has been, I've noticed this be a, a recent issue in Africa. You know, I was reading The Economist not too long ago, and they were talking about how there's almost like a new wave of colonization that is spearheaded by, you know, Chinese investors. And, oh, yeah. And they're building infrastructure and things like that. But that for me, that's very worrisome, because I really do feel like African countries If they could just kind of organize themselves, they might find solutions for themselves that outweigh anything that any outside force could create for them because they know their space better than anybody else. And, you know, China is still trying to deal with its own issues. (laughs) You know, you know, they have pollution in Shanghai and, and Beijing and all these places. And so I don't know that they necessarily have solutions that are best fits for Africa, per se. And so I would be so interested to see if different African countries could kind of organize themselves and figure out, which is why I was so happy to go to Nigeria and Ghana and see what they're doing to kind of address their own issues, to see if they can actually internally deal with their own problems and solve it on their own, versus this kind of like consistent dependency on outside forces that in the long run can actually lead to the deletion <laughs> of what they're trying to accomplish. So, yeah, I think the, the video game example is just, just, one. I mean, it's entertainment focused, but I think it's just one example of how somebody from that space can make something that's impactful for, for your own peer group. And hopefully people within that space will actually invest in it and become consumers of it and um, contribute to the internal
0: economy. So from your trip, is there anything that you really picked up that you think you'll bring back and incorporate into Prism?
1: Well, yeah, there was, there was a couple of artists that I whose work I saw when I was there that I'm definitely going to be exhibiting one at the art fair. That's to be expected. <laughs> and I think in years down the road... When I have a larger budget, I'd like to actually invite performers from Africa to do performances here in Miami, have like some cross-cultural dialogue with Caribbean people in this space. And I think in the long term, I will definitely be doing more, having a stronger relationship with different countries and different cultural practitioners in that space.
0: Now, with a lot of this work that you're doing, I mean, not just this curation, but as you mentioned, the day-to-day stuff with, with putting on PRISM and doing all of that, how do you stay motivated and inspired with all this?
1: It's very easy because, I mean, I just, I love doing it. When I find one bit of information that I find fascinating, it leads me to more. It's kind of like a domino effect. So as I'm reading about something or as I meet people... And they refer me to somebody else. It's just the discoveries along the way is what motivates me. And then, you know, just I'm motivated by the opportunities to go and meet people in different parts of the globe. I think it's just the work itself is just highly motivating. I never actually have to wield myself into doing it because I enjoy doing it, which is very telling, you know, in in previous lines of work, I felt burdened by the work I was doing. I wasn't enjoying myself, whereas this I know is the right fit because I get up every day and I want to do it. So finding the motivation, I don't have to find it. It's just kind of a natural part of the process.
0: When you think about kind of the state of the, the fine art industry today, do you have any, any thoughts on that? I'm thinking of, I'm trying to remember the name of this exhibit, but there was like some exhibit that was happening in, in New York where there was all of this censorship around whether or not the exhibit should even be shown or if it should be destroyed. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm completely blanking on the name. I'm so sorry.
1: I think, I think you're talking about the Whitney. The Whitney, yes, yes, yeah, yes, the Whitney. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> I remember.
0: I heard about it on a few podcasts, and then I kind of was looking into it a bit myself. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. Do you feel like the fine art community has really kind of changed in these past few years? As and I, I hate to say it this way, but as more people have become "quote unquote" woke, have you seen like the fine art industry kind of change in relation to that?
1: I think yes, and I think there. I think it's a gradual change. Because the fine art industry, prior to certain things that are happening or certain factors that are happening right now, it always felt like a very elitist space. It felt very exclusionary. In many ways, it still is. But I think people do. People are privy to that. People do realize that the irony of it is that art is not really. Artists are generally not elitist themselves, which is, you know, which kind of lends to the irony of how, how the commercialization of art kind of creates this very snooty slash elitist conversation. But I do think, though, that in understanding that these kind of systems exist to kind of perpetuate wealth disparity in many ways. Practitioners within it, particularly practitioners of color, have recognized that their cultural production has long been a part of the conversation without receiving the the same degree of accolade and appreciation as, you know, say other practitioners who are more Euro-aligned, so to speak. <laughs> I got <laughs> My euphemisms are beautiful today. I don't know what's going on. But <laughs> <laughs> But um, I think that cultural practitioners recognize, have long recognized that these these sort of disparities exist. I don't think there's really a good reason for it other than perpetuating a wealth gap. Because simultaneously, while art is art, it's part of archiving historical events. That's I mean I consider that a part of what art does. It it also does function as as commodity in many ways, and. You know, since it does function as a commodity, you are aware of how certain things function in the marketplace, how certain works function in the marketplace and others and how others function in the marketplace. You are attuned to those things. I mean, that's part of the reason why I began PRISM. PRISM for me was me recognizing that I didn't see a lot of cultural practitioners of color, of African descent, um, really successfully participating in the arts marketplace and I didn't I still didn't feel that there was entry points for emerging artists from of African descent and from Africa to really to really make waves without being deceased you know or near deceased so I think those things are very, they're changing a lot. We have cultural practitioners from Africa and from the African diaspora who are young now, who are highly successful. There's a young lady, she's, I think she's of Nigerian origin. Her name is Ndejeka Akunyili Crosby, and her works are selling at six figures. She's doing incredibly well. She's a Yale graduate, MFA, and I think she got her BFA from. Philadelphia Academy of Fine Arts. She's doing incredibly well. And you have other young, her other contemporaries that are are doing just as well. And that is progress. So yeah, I think slowly but surely those things are being addressed. And I'm sure things will be different 10 years from now as well.
0: I just remember for people that are listening, the, the whole Whitney biennial controversy, there's this this painting by this artist, Dana What's Schutz, mm-hmm. and is depicting Emmett Till, mm-hmm. but it's depicting him kind of in an open casket sort of way. And so the controversy was and still is mm-hmm. around, you know, having a white artist mm-hmm. appropriating an image like this that shows kind of such brutal violence. Right, so, right. I'll put a link to it in the show notes so people can can check it out in case they hadn't heard about right. it. Mm-hmm. Now, PRISM, like you said, is coming up on five years. What has this event taught you? Mm-hmm. It's taught
1: me that people want to see this content. That, that, that PRISM has grown the way it has in the past five years. It tells me that people want to see work like this. They want to see a project that kind of stretches the, tre- stretches the envelope. People want to be challenged. It's taught me a lot about my own personal capacity for taking on projects of this scale and being able to manage it gracefully and, yeah, to man- to be able to, to manage it without kind of succumbing to stress. It's taught me a lot about business, just being managing a business, that, what that requires. And yet, and it's taught me a lot about people, about how varied our own spaces, our own African and African diasporic spaces are, that they're not this monolith that people think that (laughs) people from other cultural spaces think it is. It's very, people do things very differently. And I've had an opportunity to really see and understand to some degree how people operate in different spaces.
0: So, yeah. You know, I say that that same thing about revision path Mm -hmm. when it comes to, I mean, I've done now over, 200 episodes and the reason that i well i mean i want to say the reason that i've done it but the reason that i continue to do it is because i want to show that large amount of diversity and what people might see as just a very monolithic space like they might just see Mm -hmm. oh you know black designers or whatever and have one specific possibly stereotypical you know kind of thought as to what that means but Mm -hmm. you know with the show i mean it's it's different people Geographically is not just in the US, it's in Europe, mm-hmm. it's throughout Africa, it's in Australia. I hope to get to Asia and Brazil, mm-hmm. hopefully this year. Yes. If not this year, then definitely next year. I mean not Brazil, but South South America. Well, Brazil's in South America. Right, really. right. But um, <laughs> but also like there's variety in in discipline and there's variety in age, and there's variety in so many other different, you know, different demographics, so to speak. So I even have it when people go to that archive page of all the episodes. Like I purposely don't paginate that and make it one big wall of people. So there's no excuse if someone's like, Oh, I can't find black designers or whatever. I'm like, you have people here of every shape, size, color, nationality, what have you on this, this one page. And so I, I totally get what you mean there with showcasing the diversity and what might be seen as something very monolithic. Mm-hmm. Now, if you had your way with Prism, who would you love to exhibit or who would you love to have there? Oh, my gosh. Just one? <laughs> yeah, like, like, like dream, like you had a, your dream budget. Mm-hmm. Who would you want to have? I think it would be a
1: toss-up. I'm going to name a woman and a man. Okay. So it would be on the male side. I think it would be either Elonatsui or Nick Cave. Those are my two okay. male choices. And then on the woman's side, I think I would love to have Carrie Mae Weems mm. or the same young lady I mentioned earlier N- and Dejeka Akonee Crosby. I've had a lot of really amazing artists in PRISM so far. I'm I'm actually very blessed and pleased with the exhibitors I've had in PRISM so far. So I have no doubt that eventually at some point I will be able to... To, to have my dream list fulfilled. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Yeah. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? In the
1: next five years, I would like Prism to actually have additional satellites beyond Miami. So maybe a satellite in New York, maybe a satellite in Chicago, maybe a satellite in Nigeria or even Ghana. And and then be, once we sort of get the foundational, we get prism settled in those different satellites, then I'd like my architectural skills to kick back in and do some like actual community
0: development work. Oh, what kind of community development work?
1: Specifically kind of like alleviating, creating workable and really trying to figure out this whole gentrification issue. Like how to mm-hmm. how to really mitigate it because gentrification is not necessarily a bad thing. Gentrification, the part of gentrification that that's horrible is the displacement part of it. But cleaning up a neighborhood can never be a bad thing. Right. The part that's bad is that once you clean it up, the tax implications of that and the property taxes go up. It becomes cost prohibitive for for people who don't necessarily make six figures or or even five figures or higher five figures that's the problem with gentrification so you know kind of thinking about community development building projects and building housing for people such that they can still enjoy healthy sustainable communities with amenities without necessarily having to be millionaires (laughs) you know like you don't have to be a millionaire or even you don't even have to make six figures, but you can still have access to education. You don't have to live in a food desert just because you're not making six figures. You can still really enjoy the joys of having a quality life without having to necessarily be a be high net worth individual. So like, yes, these are some of the things I think about a lot. And trying to figure out how to put them into practices, something I want to get into eventually.
0: Yeah. I feel like it, this year they're actually, I think by the time this podcast airs, I'll be not at, but I'll be going to the black and design conference, which takes place every, every other year at Harvard. Ever, this yeah. is actually the second, this is the second year that they're, well, the second time that they're putting it on. And I went the first time in 2015 and It was so amazing seeing, first of all, it's it's more so geared towards urban planners, Mm -hmm. which I think kind of deterred a lot of people that I tried to get to come to it because they are more digital designers or product designers. And they're thinking, oh, well, that doesn't really apply to me. And part of my thinking is, look, it's a conference called Black in Design. Mm -hmm. How many of these are you going to go to in your career? Let's just go. Like the tickets were like 50 bucks. Let's just go. But the things that they discussed there were around issues of, like, gentrification. They were around historical artifacts. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did it in this way where each session kind of, I don't know, they kind of grew out of each other, almost like those Russian nesting dolls. Right. Like, the first session would be about the city. And then the second session is about the region. And the third session is about, like, the state. And then it, like, grows out from there. Mm-hmm. And each of the people that they had talked about how they use design Mm -hmm. to help impact communities, whether it's putting together neighborhood eating programs so this community can have better health, Mm -hmm. or maybe it's designing a public plaza that pays tribute to the African slave trade that happened in Brazil or something like that. It was a really good event. I'm really excited to see what's going to be discussed this year because it's more so around... Mm -hmm resistance and coalition building, oh, which I think are right. really important mm-hmm. in this time. So mm-hmm. I'm really excited to see what, what that is going to be. And that's
1: because I was actually supposed to go. I remember a friend of mine, Michelle Joan Wilkinson. Her, oh, yeah. yeah. Her and I were like, oh, we need to. Go. And I was actually going to go. when she ended up going. And at that time, I hadn't met her yet, but we were just kind of virtual friends. And mm-hmm. we were like, yes, let's meet up and let's go. But my schedule kind of deterred me because uh, I think at the time I was still working for another organization in addition to Prism. And so my commitments for my other job didn't allow me to go anymore. But I heard that it was really great. So I would love to go this time around. Do you know what time of the year it's going to be? Because I've kind of fallen off. I don't think I'm on their mailer or anything like
0: that anymore. Yeah, well, their website just relaunched recently. They just opened up early bird tickets at the beginning of this month. I think the early bird tickets are are sold out but they have general admission but it's going to take place october the 6th through the 8th okay and if they do it like they did the first year they're going to live stream the whole thing oh that's great Mm -hmm. yeah so even if you're not able to attend you'll be able to at least virtually see the the presentations and everything but no i'm really looking forward to it i think it's going to be great Mm -hmm. okay oh that's great yeah
1: i'll have to look out for it Mm
0: mm-hmm well, Mikhail, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about Prism and about your work online?
1: Well, you can visit Prism at www.prism. That's prism with a Z. So it's P R I Z as in zebra, M as in Mary, art fair, F as in Frank, A I I R dot com. On that website, you can um, kind of get a sense of what our programming is like this year. You can buy tickets to our art fair there. So there's a VIP program. You can buy single day tickets as well as multi-day tickets online. And then you can also visit us on Twitter at Prism Art Fair. You can also visit my own personal Twitter page, which is Mikhail Solomon at Mikhail Solomon. And both. Prism and Mikael Solomon are on Instagram as well. And you can connect with me on LinkedIn at Mikhail Solomon.
0: Sounds good. Well, Mikhail Solomon, thank you so much for for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing not just kind of the story behind how Prism began, but also really how your travel and how your background and everything have helped influence this cultural event that takes place in such a really in such a dynamic spot. You know, you talk about Miami and how it has all these different cultural influences. Thank you for just contributing to the culture and helping to curate it and to show just how much diversity is out there and bringing it to Miami. So thank you again for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Oh,
1: thank you so much for inviting me. I I enjoyed speaking with you,
0: Maurice. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Mikhail Solomon and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Mikhail and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, Hover, and SiteGround. Facebook designers work on creative products that are used by over 2 billion people. Their mission is to make the world more open and connected, and they use design to create prototypes, shape experiences, and ultimately solve problems as well. Learn more about Facebook design at Facebook.com forward slash design. Whether you need to sell your products, share some big news, or just tell a story, MailChimp makes it easy to create campaigns that best suit your message. Automate your marketing efforts, put your data to work, and watch the results roll in. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. Every great idea deserves a great domain name, and Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domains. They offer free private domain registration, your choice of hundreds of domain extensions, and you can connect those domains to your WordPress site, your Behance, or your Dribbble profile, even your LinkedIn profile. Ready to get started? Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. Since 2004, SiteGround has been empowering web professionals and beginners alike to build better, faster, safer websites easily without having to worry about hosting. Visit SiteGround.com forward slash revision path to get 60% off on all hosting plans. SiteGround, web hosting crafted with care. Also, don't forget about the presenting sponsor for this week's episode, Videoblocks. Head on over to Videoblocks.com forward slash revision path and get a ton of great stock footage for just $149 a year. That's videovlock scom forward slash revision path. Save on millions of studio-quality clips from video blocks. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you like this episode, please do me a huge favor. First, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, and next, leave us a rating and a review. It only takes a minute or two. It really helps to show up by bumping us up in the Rankings for Design podcast, And I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Visit us at yepitslunch.com for all your design, strategy, and creative consulting needs. And if you like the work that we're doing here at Revision Path, then please consider becoming a patron. You know, now more than ever, Revision Path needs your support to make sure that stories about Black designers and creatives in our field are being told in their own words. So if you support us, if you support our mission, just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge today. For just $5 a month, you get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.